0: part 2 chapter 3 of the dead letter by meta victoria fuller victor this librivox recording is in the public domain the confession in the afternoon we paid miss sullivan a visit it was the first time i had met her since that strange night of watching at Moreland villa and i confess that i could not meet her without an inward shudder of abhorrence unbounded as was my respect and confidence for mr burton i did think that he had erred in his conclusions as to the character of this woman, or else that he concealed from me his real opinions, for some purpose to be explained at the proper time. If he still had suspicions, it was evident that he had kept them from their object, as skillfully as from me, for I saw, by her manner of receiving him, that she regarded him as a friend. Notwithstanding I had been informed of her rapidly failing health, I was shocked at the change in Miss Sullivan since I had seen her, It was with an effort that she rose from her easy-chair at our approach. The fullness had all wasted from her naturally queenly figure. Her cheeks were hollow and aflame with the fire of fever, while those black eyes, which had ever seemed to smoulder above unfathomable depths of volcanic passion, now almost blazed with light. Something like a smile flitted across her face when she saw my companion, but smiles were too strange there to feel at home, and it vanished as soon as seen. I do not think she liked me any better than I did her, each recoiled from the other instinctively. She would not have spoken to me had I come alone, but out of concession to the presence of her friend she bowed to me and asked me to be seated. A little child in the room ran to Mr. Burton, as if expecting the package of bonbons which he took from his pocket. But, as he became engaged in conversation with Lisey, I coaxed her over to me, where she was soon sitting on my knee. She was a pretty little girl, about three years old, in whose chubby little features I could no longer trace any resemblance to her aunt. She prattled after the fashion of children, and in listening to her, I lost a remark or two of mr Burton's, but soon had my attention aroused by hearing Miss Sullivan exclaim, Going away for how long? Three months at least. Her hands sunk in her lap, and she became pale and agitated. It is presumptuous in me to dare to be sorry. I am nothing to you, but you are much to me. I don't know how we shall get along without you. Don't be uneasy about that, my child. I shall make arrangements with this same person who boards you now, to keep you until my return, and if you should fall sick, to take good care of you. You are far too good, she responded tremulously. You will have the blessing of the friendless. I only wish it had the power to bring you good luck on your journey. Perhaps it will. He said with a smile. I have a great deal of faith in such blessings. But, Lisey, I think you can assist my journey in even a more tangible way than that. She looked at him inquiringly. I want you to tell me, all and everything you know, about the father of little Nora. Why, sir? she quickly asked. I hope you have not heard from him, looking over toward the child as if afraid it might be snatched from her. Your health is very far gone, Lisi. I suppose you hardly hope ever to recover it would you not be glad to see nora under her father's protection before you were taken away she stretched out her arms for the child who slid off my knee ran and climbed into her lap where she held the curly head close to her bosom for a moment her attitude was as if she sheltered the little one from threatening danger i know more surely than any else that my days are numbered i believe i shall never see your face again mr burton and that was what grieved me when you spoke of going away It was not that I thought of my comfort so much. The winter snow will hide me, before you come back from your journey, and my darling will be left friendless. I know it. It is my only care. But I would rather, far rather, leave her to the cold charity of an orphan asylum. Yes, I would rather turn her upon the street, with her innocent face only for a protector, than that her father should have aught to do with Nora. Why? Because he is a bad man.' i understand that he is in california and as i was going to san francisco and perhaps shall visit the mining regions before my return i thought you might wish to send him a message telling him the child's condition he may have laid up money by this time and be able to send you a sum sufficient to provide for little nora until she is old enough to take care of herself she only shook her head drawing the child closer with a shudder i have forgotten his name said mr burton i will not tell you answered miss sullivan with a return of the old fierceness like that of a hunted panther. Why can I never, never, never be let alone? Do you think I would do anything for your injury or disadvantage? asked the detective in that gentle yet penetrating voice which had such power to move people to his will. I do not know, she cried. You have seemed to be my friend, but how do I know that it is not all simply to compass my destruction at last? You have brought into my house that person, looking at me, who has persecuted me. You promised me that I should be free from him, and now you want to set a bloodhound on my track, as if I must be driven into my grave and not allowed to go in peace. I assure you, Lisey, I had no idea that you regarded Nora's father with so much dislike. I have no object in the world in troubling you with him. I promise you that no word of mine shall give him the clue to your present circumstances, nor to the fact that he has a child living if he is ignorant of it. You shall be protected, you shall have peace and comfort what i would like is that you shall give me a history of his life his habits character where he lived what was his business etc and i will give you my reasons for wishing the information a circumstance has come to light which connects him with an affair which i am investigating that is if he is the person i think he is a sort of doctor i believe miss sullivan did not answer the question so skilfully put she still watched us with shining half-sullen eyes "'as if ready to put forth a claw from the velvet if we approached too near. "'Come, Lisey, you must tell me what I want to hear.' Mr. Burton's air was now that of a master. "'Time is precious. I cannot wait upon a woman's whim. "'I have promised you, and repeat it upon my honour, "'that no annoyance or injury shall come to you through what you may tell me. "'If you prefer to answer me quietly to being compelled to answer before a court, "'all is right. I must know what I desire about this man.' man mr burton call him creature very well creature Lisey. you know him better than i do and if you say he is a creature i suppose i may take it for granted his name is or was george thorley when the name was spoken i gave a start which attracted the attention of both my companions you probably know something about him mr redfield remarked the girl george thorley of blankville who used to have an apothecary shop in the lower part of the village and who left the place some three years ago to escape the talk occasioned by a suspicious case of malpractice in which he was reported to be concerned the same person sir did you know him i cannot say that i was acquainted with him i do not remember that i ever spoke a word with him but i knew him by sight very well he had a face which made people look twice at him i think i bought some trifles in his shop once and the gossip there was about him at the time he ran away fixed his name in my memory i was almost a stranger then in blankville had lived there only about a year how did he come to have any connection with your family Lisey? miss sullivan had grown pale during the agitation of our talk but she flushed again at the question hesitated and finally looking the detective full in the eyes answered since you have promised upon your honour not to disturb me any further about this matter and since i am under obligations to you sir which i cannot forget I will tell you the rest of the story, a part of which I told you that morning at Moreland Villa. I confessed to you there the secret of my own heart, as I never confessed it to any but God, and I told you something of my cousin's history to satisfy you about the child. I will now tell you all I know of George Thorley, which is more than I wish I knew. The first time I ever saw him was over four years ago, a short time after he set up his little shop, which, you recollect, was not far from my aunt's in Blankville. My aunt sent me one evening for something to relieve the toothache, and I went into the nearest place, which was the new one. There was no one in but the owner. I was surprised by the great politeness with which he treated me, and the interest he seemed to take in the case of my aunt. He was a long time putting up the medicine, pasting the label on, and making change, so that I thought my aunt would surely be out of temper before I could bring her the drops. He asked our name, and where we lived, which was all, I thought, but a bit of his blarney to get the goodwill of his customers. Miss Sullivan usually spoke with great propriety, but occasionally a touch of her mother's country in accent or expression betrayed her Irish origin. That was the beginning of our acquaintance, but not the end of it. It was but a few days before he made an excuse to call at our house. I was a young girl then, gay and healthy, and the plain truth of it is that George Thorley fell in love with me. My aunt was very much flattered, telling me i would be a fool not to encourage him that he was a doctor and a gentleman and would keep his wife like a lady that there would be no more going out to sew and slave for others if i were once married to him it was only what she expected of me that i would at least be a doctor's wife after the schooling she had given me and with the good looks i had it is no vanity in me now to say of this clay so soon to be mingled with the dust of the earth that it was beautiful Too much so, alas, for my own peace of mind, for it made me despise the humble and honest suitors who might have secured me a lowly happy life. Yet it was not that either, and I'll not demean myself to say so. It was not because I was handsome that I held myself aloof from those in my own station. It was because I felt that I had thoughts and tastes they could not understand, that my life was above theirs in hope, in aspiration. I was ambitious, but only to develop the best that was in me. If I could only be a needlewoman all my days, then I would be so skilful and so fanciful with my work as almost to paint pictures with my needle and thread. But this isn't telling you about George Thorley. From the first I took a dislike to him. I'm not good at reading character, but I understood his pretty thoroughly, and I was afraid of him. I was very cold to him, for I saw that he was of a quick temper, and I did not mean he should say that I had ever encouraged him. I told my aunt I did not think he was a gentleman. I had seen plenty of real gentlemen in the houses where I sewed, and they were not like him. I told her, too, that he had a violent temper and a jealous disposition, and could not make any woman happy. But she would not think of him in that light. Her heart was set on the apothecary's shop, which, she said, would grow into a fine drug store with the doctor's name in gilt letters on the door of his office. George soon offered himself, and was terribly angry when I refused him. I believe he loved me in his selfish way better than he loved any other human creature. He would not give me up, nor allow me any peace from his persecutions. He dogged my steps whenever I went out, and if I spoke to any other man, it put him in a rage. I got to feeling that I was watched all the time, for sometimes he would laugh in his hateful way and tell me of things he had seen when I thought him miles away. Twice, in particular, I remember of his being in a savage passion and threatening me. It was after here the speaker's voice despite her efforts to keep it steady trembled and sunk he had seen me riding out in the carriage with mrs morland he said those people were making a fool of me that i was so set up by their attentions as to despise him i told him that if i despised him it was not for any such reason it was because he behaved so ungentlemanly toward me spying around me when he had no business whatever with my affairs that made him madder than ever and he muttered words which I did not like. I told him I was not afraid of any mortal thing, and I didn't think he would frighten me into marrying him. He said he would scare me yet, so that I would never get over it. I think he liked the spirit I showed. It seemed the more I tried to make him hate me, the more determined he was to pursue me. I don't know how it was that I understood him so well, for in those days there had been nothing whispered against his character. Indeed, people didn't know much about him, and he got himself into the good graces of some of the leading citizens of blankville he had told me something of his history that is that his family were english that he like myself was an orphan that by dint of good luck he had got a place in a doctor's office in one of the towns in this state one of those humble situations where he was expected to take care of the physician's horse drive the carriage put up medicines attend upon orders and anything and everything he was smart and quick he had many hours of leisure when waiting behind the little counter and these hours he spent in studying the doctor's books which he managed to get hold of one at a time by these means and by observing keenly the physician's methods his advice to patients who called at the office and by reading and putting up prescriptions constantly he picked up a really surprising smattering of science making up his mind to be a doctor and to keep a drug store a profitable business he knew he had the energy to carry out his plans How he finally obtained the capital to set up the little business in Blankville I never understood, but I knew that he attended lectures on surgery one winter in New York, and was in a hospital there a short time. All this was fair enough, and proved him ambitious and energetic, but I did not like or trust him. There was something dark and hidden in the workings of his mind, from which I shrunk. I knew him, too, to be cruel. I could see it in his manner of treating children and animals. There was nothing he liked so well as to practice his half-learned art of surgery upon some unfortunate sufferer. The more he insisted on my liking him, the more I grew to dread him. Affairs were at this crisis when my cousin came from New York to pay my aunt a visit. Coming to our rooms almost every evening, of course he made her acquaintance immediately. For the purpose of making me jealous, he began to pay the most devoted attention to her. Nora was a pretty girl, with blue eyes and fair hair an innocent-minded thing, not very sharp, apprenticed to a milliner in the city. She believed all that Dr. Thorley told her, and fell in love with him, of course. When she went away after her little holiday, George found that, instead of provoking me to jealousy, he had only roused my temper at the way he had fooled Nora. I scolded him well for it, and ended by telling him that I would never speak to him again. Well, it was just after that, a scandal arose about his causing the death of a person by malpractice. He found it was prudent to run away, so he sold his stock for what he could get and hid himself in New York. I did not know at first where he was, but felt so relieved to be rid of him. I had made up my own mind to go to New York and get employment in a fancy store. You know, Mr. Burton, for once I laid my heart before you what wild, mad, but sinless infatuation it was which drew me there. I am not ashamed of it god is love when i stand in his presence i shall glory in that power of love which in this bleak world has only fretted and wasted my life in heaven our whole lives will be one adoration she clasped her thin hands together and turned her dark eyes upward with an expression rapt to sublimity i gazed upon her with renewed surprise and almost reverence never do i expect to meet another woman the whole confirmation of whose mind and heart so fitted her for blind, absolute devotion as Lisey Sullivan's. When I went to the city to see about getting a place, I met my cousin, who told me she was married to George Thorley, and had been for some weeks, that they were boarding in a nice, quiet place, and that George stayed at home a great deal. Indeed, he hardly went out at all. It was evident that she had not heard of his reasons for leaving Blankville, "'and that she did not guess why he kept himself so quiet. "'Of course I hadn't the heart to tell her, "'but I made up my mind that I'd be better to stay where I was for the present, "'so I went back to my aunt, without trying to get a situation in New York. "'It was about six months after this I got word from Nora, "'begging me to come and see her. "'I loved my cousin, and I'd felt grieved that she was married to Dr. Thorley. "'I mistrusted something was wrong, so I went to the city,' and found her out in the miserable tenement where she was now stopping, starving herself in a room with hardly a bit of furniture. She burst out a-crying when she saw me, and when I stopped her sobbing, she told me she had not seen George for more than three months, that either he had met with an accident, or he'd run away from her, leaving her without a cent of money, and she was in such health that she could hardly earn enough to buy a bit of bread and pay the rent of this room. "'Do you really think he has left you?' I asked her. Sure, how can I tell? she answered, looking at me so pitifully with her innocent blue eyes. He was a fine gentleman, and's afraid I am that he's grown tired of his poor Irish Nora. I warned you, cousin, I said. I knew George Thorley for a villain, but you were taken with his fine words and wouldn't heed. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry for you, but that won't undo what's done. Are you sure you are his wife, Nora dear? As sure as I am of heaven, she cried, angry with me, but it's married we were by a protestant clergyman to please george and i've got my certificate safe ah yes indeed i could never ascertain whether the ceremony had been performed by a legalized minister i always suspected my poor cousin had been deceived and it was because my aunt thought so too and was sore on the subject that she got so angry with you two gentlemen when you went to inquire but whether my suspicions were or were not correct Nora was George's wife as certainly in the sight of the angels as woman was ever the wife of man. Poor child! I no longer hesitated about coming to New York. She needed my protection, and my help, too. I paid her board till the day of her death, which was but a few days after her poor little baby was born. I saw her decently buried, and then I put out the infant to nurse, and I worked to keep that. It was a comfort to me, sir. My own heart was sad— and I took to the little creature almost as if it was my own. I had promised Nora that I would bring it up, and I have kept my word thus far. I hated its father for the way he treated Nora, but I loved the child. I took pleasure in making its pretty garments, and in seeing that it was well taken care of. I knew I should never marry, and I adopted Nora's child as my own. Hardly was poor Nora cold in her grave when I was, one evening, surprised by a visit from George Thorley. Where he had been during his absence I did not know. He tried to excuse his conduct toward my cousin by saying that he had married her in a fit of jealousy, to which I'd driven him by my coldness, that he'd been so tormented in mind he couldn't stay with her, for he didn't love her, and he'd gone out west, and been hard at work, to try and forget the past. But he couldn't forget it, and when he saw his wife's death in the papers he had felt awfully, but now he hoped I'd forgive it all and marry him. He said he had a good business started in Cincinnati, and I should want for nothing, and I mustn't say no to him again. I stood up. I was so indignant, and faced him till he grew as white as a sheet. I called him a murderer, yes, Nora's murderer, and ordered him never to speak to me or come near me again. I knew he was terribly angry. His eyes burned like fire. But he did not say much that time. As he took up his hat to go, he asked about his baby, if it was living. I would not answer him. He had no right to the child, and I did not wish him to see it or have anything to do with it. What became of him after that, for a long time I don't know. He may have been in the city all the time, or he may have been in Cincinnati. At any rate, one day as I was going from my boarding-house to the store, I found him walking along by my side. Nora was nigh a year old then. He commenced talking to me on the street, asking me again to marry him, and then to frighten me He said what a pretty baby Nora had got to be, and that he should have to go find a wife to take care of his child. She was his, and he was going to have her right away, and if I had any interest in her I could show it by becoming her stepmother. He said he had plenty of money, and pulled out a handful of gold and showed me, but this only made me think the worse of him. He followed me home and into my room against my will, and there I turned upon him and told him that if he ever dared to force himself into my presence again, I would summon the police, and he should be turned over to the blankful authorities for the crime that had driven him out of the village. After he was gone, I sunk into a chair, trembling with weakness, though I had been so bold in his presence. He looked like an evil spirit when he smiled at me as he shut the door. His smile was more threatening than any scowl would have been. I was frightened for Nora. Every day I expected to hear that little creature had been taken from her nurse. I trembled night and day, but nothing happened to the child, and from that day to this I have not seen George Thorley. If he is in California, I am glad of it, for that is a good ways off, and perhaps he'll never get track of his daughter. I'd rather she die and be buried with her mother and myself than to live to ever know that she had such a father. It seems a strange lot has been mine, concluded the sewing girl, her dark eyes musing with a far-away look to have been followed by such a man as that, to have set my heart so high above me, and then to have fallen, by means of that love, into such a dreadful pit of circumstances, not only to be heartbroken, but so driven and hunted about the world with my poor little lambkin here. The pathetic look and tone with which she said this touched me deeply. For the first time I felt fully the exceeding cruelty I had been guilty of toward her if she were as innocent as her words averred of that nameless and awful crime which i had written down against her at that moment i did believe her innocent i did pity her for her own melancholy sufferings which had wasted the fountains of her life and i did respect her for that humble and perfect devotion giving all and asking nothing with which she lavished her soul upon him whose memory called upon his friends for sleepless vigilance in behalf of justice i did not wonder that she shrunk from me as from one ready to wound her but this was only when in her presence as soon as i was away i felt doubtful again have you any likeness of george thorley asked mr burton no poor nora had his ambrotype but after her death i threw it into the fire will you describe him to us miss sullivan gave a description corresponding in all particulars with that given by mr burton after reading the dead letter he asked her about the third finger of the right hand and she said yes it had been injured by himself in some of his surgical experiments we now proposed to take leave the detective again assuring Lisey that he should rather protect her against thorley than allow him any chance to annoy her he assured her she should be cared for in his absence and what was more that if little nora should be left friendless he would keep an eye on the child and see that it was suitably brought up this last assurance brightened the face of the consumptive with smiles and tears but when he gave her his hand at parting, she burst into sobs. "'It is our last meeting, sir.' "'Try and keep as well as you are now until I come back,' he said cheerfully. "'I may want you very much, then. "'And by the way, Lisey, one question more. "'You once told me that you did not recognize the person you saw upon the lawn "'at Mr. Argyle's that night. "'Have you a suspicion who it might be?' "'None. "'I believe the man was a stranger to me. "'I only saw him by a flash of lightning "'at the instant he was descending from the tree.' "'If he had been an acquaintance, I do not know that I should have known him.' "'That is all. Good-bye, little Nora. Don't forget, Burton.' We heard the little girl's sobs after the door was shut. "'I'm her only friend,' said my companion as he walked away. "'No wonder she is moved at letting me go. I think, with her, that it is doubtful if she lasts until we get back. Still, her disease is a lingering one. I hope I shall see her live to witness the sad triumph of our industry.' You speak as if the triumph were already secured. If he's on the face of the earth, we'll find, Dr. George Thorley. It is no longer possible that we should be on the wrong track. You know, Richard, that I have not confided all my secrets to you. There will be no one more astonished than yourself when I summon my witnesses and sum up my conclusions. Oh, that the hour were come! But I forget my motto. Learn to labor and to wait. End of Part 2, Chapter 3